We have spent our last two Sunday mornings together studying the transfiguration. As Jesus took his closest three disciples up there upon that high mountain, pulled back the veil to his humanity and revealed the glory that had always been his. And there upon that mountain was Elijah and Moses making clear that this is what all creation had been building towards. The law, the prophets, the hope, the joy, all building towards Jesus Christ. You'll notice this morning that we've only got one candle left because all of our hope, all of our joy, our peace, our salvation is all found in Christ Jesus. We need not look anywhere else. That's the beauty of this Christian walk. There's a singular answer to everything, and his name is Jesus Christ. So as Jesus was there and he revealed the glory, the glory that had always been his, it was a gift. It was a gift to those that were going to follow him. The days were going to be tough ahead as they turned and they marched towards Jerusalem knowing that the cross is what awaited him there. And while those of us in this room, you will not be exposed to the brilliance, the literal light that shines from the physical face of Jesus until he returns in judgment and in power. I do pray that you've had those mountaintop moments. I do pray that as you followed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there have been those times when his glory was just undeniable as you gathered together with your brother and brothers and sisters here in this room to worship him, as you spent time alone with him in prayer, as you've heard his voice speaking to you through the Holy Scriptures, as you've come to meet with him at his table, I pray that you have beheld the face with spiritual eyes of faith given by God that you have beheld the glorious face of Jesus Christ, knowing, knowing that it is there as you behold his face, as you see the Lord's face with your face unveiled, that it is there that you'll be transformed into that very same image from one degree of glory to another. I pray that you have seen. I pray that you have seen, that you have trusted, that you have believed with all that you are. That Jesus Christ, by beholding his glorious face, you are becoming like he is. And while God doesn't change, and while these means of grace, time alone in the word, study of the word, prayer, worship, holy communion, while they're always available to us, and while God does not change, we do know that it's the nature of sinful people living in this sinful world. That when that time comes for us to get up off our knees and to leave our prayer closet. When the time comes for us to leave this sanctuary, when the time comes for us to go and take the light of Christ as reflected in us out into this dark world, we know that as the world rejects that light, we know as, it, as we come against the temptation and the trial and the harassment of the God of this age, the prince of the power of this air, Satan himself and his legions, we know that those mountaintop moments are going to feel like they were a long, long way away. We're going to begin to wonder if that was a dream and maybe this is all that's real. Maybe I'm just foolish. Maybe I've just bought into some shenanigans. This can't be real, can it? Because the world out there, it's so loud and it's so big and it's so angry. They turn up their nose at what we have to offer them. So we can begin to wonder if what we experience in here is somehow just, just working ourselves up into just some hope, some hype, a myth perhaps. Dear friends, let me assure you that God is real. Let me assure you that he really does meet with you in this place. Let me assure you that he really does meet with you and speak to you in that quiet place. And let me assure you, that his promises for you are very real. No matter what this world has to say to you, no matter how badly they reject and resist the light that you bring out to them. And so we're going to see that experience in the life of the disciples today. So go ahead and stand to your feet, please.
So we turn to the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And some of the crowd answered, someone in the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him the boy. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible with the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, and he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior, and would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray, amen. So this morning's text is a bit of a strange one for Mark. Mark is the fast-paced guy, immediately is the key word never allowing your eyes to fix too long on any one scene, just keeping your head on a swivel, constantly moving from one picture to the next. He's got a very deliberate purpose with his pace as he moves through here. More often than not, if you will find a text, a story that is revealed to us in Mark's gospel, you'll find that Matthew and Luke's are oftentimes much longer, but that's not the case this morning. You'll find in this morning's text that there are details that Mark has chosen to reveal to us that you will not find in the other synoptics. So clearly... The very purpose behind Mark's gospel, the very point that God was using Mark to drive home, it was in some way dependent upon some of what Mark revealed to us here in this story. And so what you'll notice is a slightly different cadence this morning as we move through these 16 verses and we head together toward the Lord's table. So it began like this. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So Jesus and his inner circle, they head back down this mountain, and they find there the other disciples surrounded by a crowd. Now, you'll remember that Jesus has been withdrawing from the crowd. He's been withdrawing from Galilee as he headed up into the north. His time of open public ministry was over. He had given them more than enough evidence to prove his identity and his message. And yet it was only the few, only the few that had had their hearts changed by God. They've been granted softened hearts to receive the good news that is the seed of the gospel. It was only they that would embrace this. For all the rest, they would see in Jesus, they would desire in Jesus, nothing more than a man that could offer them earthly pleasures. And so he had pulled away from them with his disciples, and he had headed up north away from the crowds, and yet somehow they found him. They had followed the men up there north into Caesarea Philippi, and of course the scribes were there too. Those men that were always looking to trip up Jesus, always looking to catch him in sin, calling him a false teacher, even a blasphemer. They were there, and they were arguing with the disciples. And 
And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. And they ran up to him, and they greeted him. So some people say that the amazement on the part of the crowd. Some people say that what happened here was that Jesus' face was still showing some of that brilliance. It was still glowing from, that, from what, the glory that he had revealed high upon that mountain. But I don't think that this can be right. Firstly, because if you think about what we studied last week, is Jesus commanded these men to silence. He told them, tell no one what you have seen. What sense would it make for him to tell them not to reveal to anyone what they had seen if what they had seen was still evident upon Jesus' face? But in addition to that, if you look back to the book of Exodus, you think back to when uh, Moses would go back on, on Mount Sinai and he would meet with the Lord. He would come down and his face would shine, reflecting the radiance, the glory of God. What we found there was that Aaron and the other Israelite people, they were terrified. They did not want to come near Moses because of the glory of God shining on Moses' face. And we talked about this um, on Christmas Eve. We talked about the fact that for sinful men to behold the glorious face of the Lord, it is both a magnificent and a terrifying thing. And yet we see none of that, ter that, none of that terror here on the face of these men. In fact, what we find is that they come running up to Jesus and they greet him. No sign of fear. No sign of apprehension. They see Jesus, and they're amazed, and they're excited, and so they come running. It seems that Jesus is looking just as he always has, as one born in the likeness of men, taking on the form of a servant. What these men seen was not the glory of God reflected in the face of his son. What these men saw was a man that could do miracles and healings. He was the miracle man, and that's what drew them to him. That's why they turned and they ran. And dear friends, you need to remember this. The world is all too happy to embrace, even to run to Jesus Christ, as long as he's nothing more than a man that can meet their needs. As long as he's nothing more than a miracle worker. They're happy to embrace him. It's when you introduce the cross. Would you introduce his death and his resurrection? That's the point at which they become offended. That's the point at which they reject you. That's the stumbling block for them. That's the scandal. We need to be reminded of this from time to time. Because we can become antsy. We can become impatient. We can become dissatisfied at times as we look around and, and we wonder. We wonder, why aren't we having these mass conversions like at these great gatherings where the preacher will offer this message and then thousands of people will come forward and then he'll lead them in a prayer and then they'll all believe that somehow because they've said this prayer, surely eternal life is theirs. And we can begin to wonder, what is it that we're doing wrong? Why are we not witnessing that here in this church? Why aren't throngs of people busting down the doors and coming running to the front and falling down on their knees and praying the prayer and accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Now, dear friends, God can and does work this way. We saw it on the day of Pentecost. But the very first sermon is 3,000 people. Truly, 3,000 souls were saved on that day. And I don't make it a habit to look around and judge what other people do. And I certainly don't judge the way God chooses to work through other people. But we've got to ask ourselves at all times, are we preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ? That gospel which cannot be separated from the cross. That gospel which begins with sinful man totally and completely separated from God and unable to do anything to get back to him and moves us towards denial of self and daily dying. If we preach that gospel, we must recognize that it is going to be detestable to the world. We're going to recognize that the only way men are going to hear and receive and believe that message is if God does the thing that only God can do. The supernatural work of calling them to life where they will embrace this thing that was once a stench to them. That it will be the most glorious words they had ever heard. For thousands of years they could have heard these words, but in an instant, at that moment, it is something they had never heard before and they want it more than they've ever wanted it. 
It is only then that we will see conversions, that we'll see people truly coming to Christ. And so we don't make it a habit. We don't make it a habit of keeping score the way the rest of the world keeps score. We don't make a habit of sitting around and wringing our hands and wondering about who has or has not come to the Lord, knowing that that is his work, that we are but the sower of seeds. But we're going to make sure that the seeds we sow are the good seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as the world rejects them, knowing that the enemy is going to snatch much of it up. And so we don't get caught up in wondering about why they don't kick down the door because we know that no matter how wonderful the music, no matter how skilled the speaker, no matter how magnificent the prayer, there is nothing in our own ability, in our power, that can do the work that only God can do. And so the crowd, they come running to Jesus because they want some miracles. Verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And some of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. This is a horrible situation. This father, driven like so many other fathers, he is desperate, and so he brings his son to Jesus Christ to be healed. And this sounds a lot like epilepsy, right? It sounds like a grand mal seizure as the guy goes stiff, he falls on the ground, he foams at the mouth. And so some people, what they will say is that this demon possession and all the others that we read in the Gospels, that's nothing more than illness. That's nothing more than a medical condition. But those people back then were just so stupid, and they didn't know any difference between someone that had epilepsy, someone that had seizures, and someone that was possessed by a demon. And look, medicine and our ability to diagnose illness and, and conditions, are, are, they've, certainly, they've certainly changed over the last 2,000 years. But number one, we must never forget that God's Word is inerrant, infallible, and perfect in every way. If this Word, world, word tells us that Jesus cast a demon from a boy, then you can take it to the bank that Jesus cast a demon from the boy. But in addition to that, if you look back to some of the early encounters when Jesus was healing just massive crowds of people, look in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4, 24, we read this. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. By the way, this ain't Narnia. You can go to Syria, right? Like you know where Syria is, correct? This stuff really happened in real places to real people. I don't know, it just struck me, okay. So his fame spread through all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. You see, they knew the difference. They talked about men having seizures. They knew about paralytic people. They knew about men with seizures. They knew about men with epilepsy. But then they knew that there was something different, one with an unclean spirit, one that was possessed. They didn't proclaim every person with epilepsy to have a demon. We don't do that today. And yet we do know that demon possession is real. And so we don't know whether this boy had epilepsy and whether this unclean spirit just worked through his physical weakness to attack the boy. If perhaps all of these symptoms came upon him at the moment that the demon took, took hold. Either way, the, father's boy knows, the boy's father knows that he's got an unclean spirit and so he comes. He's heard what Jesus can do. He's heard what Jesus has done for others. And so he brings the boy and he's hoping. That he can have an encounter with Jesus, and yet when he arrives, he finds that Jesus isn't there. He's up with these nine dopes, and that Jesus is up upon a mountain. Dear friends, this reminds me of the time that Jesus sent his disciples out into the Sea of Galilee, knowing that there was a storm awaiting them while he was up on the mountain praying to the Father. We're reminded that Jesus was going to put his disciples, going to put his disciples today in situations where we cannot win in our own abilities. And yet he knows 
He has sent them there for this purpose. He knows that these nine are going to encounter this father and this boy, and he knows what's going to happen next. And so the father goes on. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. The father knew. The father knew that these men had been with Jesus. The father perhaps had heard about what happened when Jesus had sent out the 12 and the authority to cast out unclean spirits. He knew, but they weren't able to do anything. And so Jesus responds, you faithless generation. And another one of the parallels, he calls them a perverted, a perverse generation. And we don't know exactly who Jesus is talking to here. Is he talking to the scribes? Is he talking to the crowd? Is he talking to the father? Is he talking to the disciples? Maybe he's talking to all the above. They had all shown various levels of lack of faith. They had all shown themselves to be hardened at various levels. We don't know for sure, but we do see this sense that's coming upon Jesus of how long, how long am I going to bear with you people that do not believe you're faithless, you're perverse, you're untrusting and unbelieving. And they brought him the boy. And when he saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. The demons know immediately upon seeing Jesus They knew that they were powerless. And this isn't the point to this morning's text, but I do think we do well to pause at this moment and just just a subtle reminder that demons, even the prince of demons, they are not infinite. They are not all-powerful. They are not all-knowing. This demon may not have even known that the boy was being taken to see Jesus until he laid eyes on Jesus. That demons are limited. In a very real way, they are limited. And when he sees him, When he sees Jesus there, he responds doing what he does. He throws the boy on the ground, just like a fit. Just throws the boy on the ground and begins foaming at the mouth. And while the boy is still rolling around on the ground, foaming at the mouth, Jesus enters into a conversation with the father. Do you remember Jairus? As Jesus meets the man, he says, quick, you must come. My daughter is dying. And he stops to deal with the woman there with the bleeding problem. Jesus works on his own timetable, and it is perfect. But as this boy is rolling around in the dirt, foaming at the mouth, having a grand mal seizure right there with an unclean spirit beating him to death, he turns and he looks to the father and he says, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. You see, Satan knows that he cannot destroy God, and so he's going to do everything that he can to destroy those that are made in the image of God. Enemy comes only to kill, steal, and destroy Not only does this boy have seizures, but consistently the demon is throwing him into open wells where people get their water, into open fires where the people cooked. Luke says that the boy was crushed and shattered and mauled. You can just imagine this poor boy just beaten. Just go throw yourself on the ground ten times a day and see what you look like. Imagine the force. This isn't the force of just the boy falling over. This is a picture of someone being body slammed being thrown into the ground over and over and over again. John MacArthur wonders if the boy, how many concussions must he have had? I mean, this demon is trying to destroy everything he can to destroy this boy. And this poor man, this father, surely he had to follow this boy around since birth, just constantly trying to keep him from falling in the fire, falling in a pit and dying. If he wasn't there, some other family member had to have been. This demon was truly doing everything he could, not only to destroy this boy, but to destroy his entire family. And so the father cries out, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is the opposite of the leper at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. You remember that? As the leper came to him and he said, if you will, you can make me clean. You see, the leper knew Jesus had the ability. The question was, Jesus, is it your will to make me clean? This man, he questioned Jesus' ability. He saw the compassion. 
He saw the love. He saw the desire. He saw the will. But he wondered, Jesus, can you? Can you do anything here? And Jesus responded, if you can. Now, I don't know. Like, we don't, we don't get to, texts are dangerous, right? Because when you text somebody, you don't know what the face is, what the mode is. People try to add emojis, but not everybody uses emojis the same way, right? Like, and so you don't really know what people are saying. It's a dangerous thing. So it's dangerous. I don't know what the look on Jesus' face was, but I imagine it was something like, if I can. If I, if I can. All things are possible for the one who believes. And now, this is a, maybe a bad Sunday for us to preach this text because we are headed towards the Lord's table, and time is short. And so when we get to chapter 11 of Mark's gospel and, and, and the withered fig tree, we'll have time to really pull this apart. But there is so much bad theology that has been born out of texts like this because there been, there's so many preachers that they take what Jesus says here and they come to the conclusion that what this means is, is that if you will just believe strongly enough, there is nothing that you cannot do. There is nothing you cannot have. There is nothing that God will withhold from you. If all you do is just believe strongly enough, and what happens then is men turn completely self-focused. This life of faith becomes about nothing more than self. How much strength of faith can I develop? How strongly can I make myself believe? And you begin reading these self-help books, trying to muster faith in and of yourself so that then you can just shoot lightning bolts out of your fingertips and make sure that there's nothing that this world can bring against you that all your family members are going to be healed, that you're going to have piles of money to go swimming in, and that no problem is ever going to befall your family. And then the problem is, is parents stand over the bed of their dying child, or a husband watches as his wife withers away, and someone, meaning well, just tells them, look, if you'll just believe, God is guaranteed to heal the one that you love. Then if God does not answer the prayer in the way we desire, that man is left not only with the pain of loss, but with the shame of being told that he just didn't believe enough. He had just believed enough. God was guaranteed to do this thing. Isn't that what Jesus has said here? So I want to say this as succinctly as possible again, because we're, we're moving towards the table and time is short, but just look at the lives of countless faithful believers, the apostles included. How many times did they ask God for something Something sincerely they needed, truly believing that God could. He could heal the one that was sick. That he could save the one that was lost. That he could chase this demon from their life. Whatever it is, they needed healing or salvation or freedom. And that despite their faith, despite their deep and abiding belief, healing didn't come. What then do we do with texts like this? Texts like John 14, 12 through 14. If what Jesus is saying here, if he's not saying that I promised you that in you will come the ability to guarantee everything you would want in this lifetime, even the things that you need in this lifetime to sustain your physical life. If what he's saying here is I'm not making you the promise that if you'll just believe enough that you will never lose your life, that you will never lose a loved one, that no one will ever remain sick, what then is he assuring us? Well, look at what he's responding to first. What was the question that the father asked? He said, if you can do anything. He's questioning Jesus' ability to do anything. He's saying, if I can, all things are possible for he who believes. You need to understand that Jesus is making clear here that with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The question at hand was, Jesus, can you? And he's saying, yes, I can. And what I'm calling you to is to believe in the one that can. To believe in the one for whom all things are possible. There is no end to my power. There is no end to my might. 
There is no end to my knowledge or my wisdom or my goodness. You need to understand that the one that you are standing before, the one that you are being called to believe in, there is no end to the things that I can do. There is yet to be a challenge that I could not meet and exceed. And so when healing does not always come, when healing is not always God's will, when God chooses to be glorified in your pain, in your suffering, even in your death, when God chooses to leave that thorn in, the, in your flesh that you may learn deeper dependence and greater trust in him, we need to remind ourselves over and over that there is nothing that is ever too difficult for the God of this universe. We need to recognize that if this thing remains, it's not because it was too big for God. It's not because we just found that one thing that Jesus couldn't overcome. We come to him trusting in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our suffering, as we watch those that we love die, we come to him trusting and believing that he can, that he very well may heal. But if he does not, it is not because he was not able. At the same time, understanding that for those that are his, you have already become the product of a miracle, the likes of which you can't even understand. You need to know this, that even in bringing you to the point of faith, never forget this, Christian, that in bringing you to the point of faith, bringing you to the point of belief, God had to do something that only he could do, an incredible miracle by the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing you to new birth. Do you know why so many of the world know nothing of the power of God? You know why so many of the believing community know nothing of the power of God in their life? Because at the very point at which they were told they were saved, there was nothing supernatural involved whatsoever. They were told that it was just through the coercion, the, 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 the exhortation of a skillful preacher. And then because they, in and of themselves, they manufactured this innate desire to believe in Jesus. There was no room for the Holy Spirit. There was no working of God. There was no miracle there whatsoever. You just woke up one day and got smarter and decided to follow Jesus. And then you wonder why you see nothing of God's power in this world because you never understood the way in which he calls men to faith. The power that it takes to call a man that was spiritually dead to life and to believe in a thing that was once an offense and a stumbling block and a scandal to him, that is a miracle. No less a miracle than raising a dead man's boy. No less a miracle than casting a demon from someone. You don't understand it. You've experienced the power of God. If you, if you are a believer, you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if eternal life is yours, you're already the product of a miracle. But when we throw all that away, we throw all that away, and then we come to these lesser things. Physical health is a lesser thing. Enough money in the bank is a lesser thing. And then we start beating our chest and running around and trying to figure out the right verse to recite trying to figure out how to grunt hard enough and manufacture enough belief. And then God's got to answer this one. He says, you didn't trust me with your salvation. I promised I was going to be nicer today. Yeah. So we need to recognize that when we turn and we, and we look to Jesus Christ, that we are dealing with the God who breathes stars, the God who casts demons from possessed boys, the God who raises dead men from the grave, the God who has called you to life. And so we can trust at all times that while he may not always act in accordance with your will, that his will is always for your good. That the moment in which he has called you from death to life, he now becomes your God. All that he is is for your good. It may not be the good that you wanted. It may not be the good that you understand, but next side of heaven, as you step off into eternity, you will look backwards and you will say, surely God has done abundantly good and all things and so we come to him knowing you can work all things for my good you will work all things for my good and I trust you with whatever the consequences are I trust you with whatever the whatever the results are 
Let's move. 24. Immediately, the father cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's a beautiful confession. It reminds me of the tax collector there in the temple. He cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As he beats his chest, his father cries out, I believe. Help my belief. He did believe. He fell down, fell down on his knees. He calls Jesus the Lord. He's begging Jesus for help, believing that he could help his boy. But his belief was not as strongly as it could be, not as strongly as it should be. And the apostles, we will see that they themselves later asked Jesus, would you increase our faith? They too, they knew. We believe, and yet our faith is not what it could be. And so they turned to Jesus. Beloved, it's not the size of your faith that matters. That's the silliness in all this. That's the silliness in all this. Is we believe that Jesus' willingness to act is tied to the size of our belief. And he says no. In Matthew's parallel, he talks about having faith the size of a mustard seed, tiny faith, minuscule faith, when paced in the God whose power knows no end. We don't then need to sit around and worry about can he? If I believe strong enough to enable you, God, to do the thing that you need to do. As if we're the puppet master pulling the strings. You get this. If I believe hard enough, like he's Tinkerbell, believe in me. Please believe in me so I can do these things. He says, no. Give me faith the size of a mustard seed and watch my power pour into your life. So the man is crying out. He's saying, I desire this and so I don't turn to myself. You see this. Even your desire for belief, for faith, it can become a... act of self-focus and he's saying you turn to the one you turn to jesus christ you cry out to the author and the perfecter of your faith i believe help my unbelief that's in part what he does at this table as we come to this table and we we proclaim his death we celebrate his resurrection we look forward to his return and then as he meets us here as we feast spiritually upon his body Drink his blood. It is there that he meets us and he strengthens our faith for those that come rightly. For those that come with hearts that cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. He meets you and he strengthens you for whatever it is that waits on the outside world. All right, we got to fly here. So verse 25, and when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. And Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. This unclean spirit does exactly what every other unclean spirit that meets Jesus does. He commands, and it leaves. And then with one last act of violence, it throws the boy down, and it looks like a dead boy. Everybody thinks that he is dead like a corpse. Is this perhaps a picture, a foreshadowing of the resurrection? Is this perhaps a picture of our sorry estate before we ourselves came to see and know and believe in Jesus Christ. We don't know, but he takes the boy by the hand and he raises him up. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Again, some really bad theology has spun off of this. And this is going to be the last, I'm, I'm pretty certain, this is going to be the, the, the last time that Jesus cast a demon out of someone in Mark's gospel. And so I don't want to gloss over this too much, but you, there's been some really bad stuff that comes out of this particular text. And so let me just read what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to believe in their ex one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So number one is to pretend like there is no such thing as a devil and there is no such thing as spiritual world and there is no such thing as demons. We know that Satan is alive and well. We know he's defeated. We know he will be destroyed in the last days of the last days, but we know that he continues to work. He continues to have some power in this age. But then there are some people that get so caught up 
in the spirit world. That they refuse to just do the things that scripture has called us to do. Refuse to, they refuse to trust in the spiritual armor of God. They refuse to take up their sword. They refuse to just resist the devil that he would flee from them. They refuse to be filled with the Holy Spirit that they might not have any room for anything else. They refuse to look to those things. And instead they want to name and claim and identify every single demon out there. They want to have a special attack, a special weapon for every demon that comes against them. My wife is on one of those, I've told you all this before, I think. She's on one of those pastor wives boards. That's really lame. It's as lame as you would imagine, pastor wives sitting around crying about how hard it is to be a pastor wife. She doesn't do that, though, ever. And um, inevitably, right, like once a week, twice a week, ten times a week, what happens is there's some woman on there, and she says, there's a lady in our church, and she says my husband is not a good preacher. She's the spirit of Jezebel. It's just, it's always, right? Like, everybody that comes against you is some kind of evil spirit, and there's some special chant that you say and some special water that you splash and some special whatever, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. So those, those folks, they take this and they go, well, this was a special kind of spirit, and this kind of spirit can only be cast out with prayer and with fasting. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't even say a specific prayer here because Jesus is in perfect and complete communion with the Father and completely dependent upon the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is doing is he's preparing these men for ministry after he ascends to be with the Father. He's preparing them to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit as he sits at the right hand of the Father to go out and do the work that he has called them to. He's making clear to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him shall bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. Not only does the work of calling you to saving faith require the work of the Holy Spirit, but every step from that point forward, every work that he would have you to do, we never get to take the training wheels off. We never get to run on our own. We never get to look to God and say, okay, I've got it from here. And that was the problem with these men. They had believed because God had worked through them in similar ways in the past. They believed that somehow they had the ability, never pausing to ask God for the help, never recognizing that it was only by their faith in the all-powerful one that demons would flee. They thought they could do this on their own, not knowing that their only hope, that our only hope, not only for eternal life, but for every single thing that God has left us here to do, to be a useful servant of the Lord is to remain on your knees at all times. I've got a sign in my office, Robert Murray McShane quote. It says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. That you stay on your knees before God asking him desperately to empower you, to work through you, to do the thing that he has left you here to do. And that's what these men should have done in that moment. Instead, they tried in their own ability. And so church, is my prayer for us as we approach this table this morning. Is my prayer for us that we would not for one moment believe that we've got this thing wrapped up. Scripture says that those who persevere to the end will be saved. Dear friends, do not think that you persevere yourself. Do not think that what happens is that God calls you to saving faith he pats you on the backside and then wishes you well and says, I'll see you in heaven. We live every second of every moment of every day in absolute dependence upon him. And one of the glorious gifts that he has given to his church is that we get to come and we get to meet with him at a table with food that he has bought that we could not afford at a price that we would not and could not pay. We meet with him there and that he strengthens us knowing that when we leave this place, whether today has been a mountaintop moment for you or not, knowing that when you leave this place and you take that light and you go out into this dark world, you will meet real resistance. And you cannot do it in your own power. cannot do it in your own ability. 
Let's begin to prepare our hearts now to come to this table. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. You are so very good, Father. We praise you that you have We praise you, Father, that you have called us out of darkness and into light. We praise you, Father, that you do not leave us here alone. We praise you for the words of Christ that surely I am with you even unto the end of the age. So we praise you for the assurance that you are here with us. We praise you for the invitation that we may meet with you today. Father, if there is any among us with an unworthy heart, believing that somehow we have earned a place at this table or that we have earned your blessings in our life, Father, would you expose that to us now, lest we reach out our hand, take these elements, and die. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.